Welcome back to the Walkers We Talk Banking and Finance podcast. I'm Alice White, a senior associate in the banking and finance team here in Jersey. I'm joined today by Zoe Hallam, great partner in the banking and finance team in Guernsey and also co-head of our fund finance team in the Channel Islands. Welcome back to the podcast, Zoe. Thank you very much, Alice. And it's a pleasure to be back on the podcast. Um, as you know, and as some may know, I just took six months off to welcome my wonderful daughter into the world. Uh, but I'm firmly back in the driving seat at Walkers now. Um, I've traded nursery rhymes for Guernsey Security Interest Agreements again, um, and actually quite enjoying it. Um, so yes, just getting used to the daily juggle that parenthood entails, but I'm sure that's uh, something that a lot of listeners uh, are used to, and I will welcome any tips that they may have. We have a great episode lined up for your return to the podcast, sorry, because we have got Slade Spalding, co-founder of NLC, here with us today to give us his views and insights on the market. Welcome, Slade. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me, and welcome back, Zoe. Thank you very much. So, Slade, you have a very, very long and impressive history in the fund finance market, but now, as we know, you are at NLC, so perhaps for those listeners that might not be overly familiar. Can you tell us a bit about NLC and your role there? Thank you, Alice. Um, yeah, we've been in the fund finance space for some time. Uh, and two years ago, we set up, which is just under two years now, uh, we set up NLC um, as an alternative fund finance lender focused on deploying capital into the investment grade assets. We do this by bringing institutional capital at scale into the subscription financing market. And we're here to bring effectively the capital that's required to support the growth of the market for what we can see as a real gap being sort of emerging, which I'm sure we'll talk on in a minute as banks are starting to feel sort of their capacity constraints as the market still continues to grow at scale. Yeah, and, and you talk about actually the bank's role in the market to date and new entrants in the market, of obviously, of which NLC is one. I mean, obviously, recently we've had the Credit Suisse situation, the, the, the SVB situation, two big names in the fund finance market. Have you seen a change in activity as a result? Has it, has it led to more interest in NLC and more people approaching you? Um, and I guess, ultimately, are you sort of seeing a trend in managers and funds looking to diversify lender exposure, I guess. I think all of those points are, are, are spot on, Zoe. And, and I think NLC has been a net beneficial sort of recipient of some of the more sort of constrained markets. I think before we touch on SVB and Credit Suisse and the likes of other banks, it might be worth just stepping back a little bit and sort of looking at uh, the market, say maybe 12 months ago, we started to sort of really see the constraint coming through on the back of change of capital requirements of some of these uh, larger lending institutions within the fund finance space, which had a direct impact on capacity as the remaining piece of the market had to sort of step up. When we set up NLC, we did a sort of very high level analysis of the market. And the largest players in the market were holding anything between 8 to 14% of fund finance exposure on their balance sheets, which in any sort of regulated market is sort of hitting up on diversity sort of thresholds that are implied by the regulator, which gave us a clear indication that if the market was continuing to grow at the current pace, which has been revised slightly, the most recent sort of forecast for the next four to five years is going to be around about an 8% growth CAGR, which 
not far off doubles the market again or the private capital market through the fundraising and the likes again. And we sort of anticipated that real sort of capacity constraint coming through as banks' balance sheets are unlikely to sort of grow at the same pace. Um, so when we were looking back, we could see that there was going to be this gap in capacity um, that was going to need to be filled. And if we have a look at sort of prior markets and more specifically direct lending, that gap was filled specifically by institutional capital, which is where we saw a real sort of growth trajectory and peace for us to innovate within that space. Fast forward sort of six months ago, we could really start, um, and, and even more recently, that volatility within the banking sector has really sort of opened and widened that gap even further. And if we sort of have a look at the more regional banks in the US, for example, the SVBs, the signature banks, the First, First Republics and the likes, and as well as PacWest, we can, through the reported sort of financials, identify that there's around about 200 billion of committed lines within that fund finance market that has been placed on pause, that has been sort of created some well, some dysfunction within the market. And we estimate that sort of fund finance market to be around about 850 billion, maybe slightly higher, maybe slightly less. So when taking into consideration the 200 billion that was being placed on pause, now, just to be clear, we don't expect all of that to disappear and, and by any stretch of the imagination, there are some really credible sort of counterparties that have stepped up and acquired those banks. So we expect for that lending capacity to normalize in some way or form, albeit there is going to be significant sort of disruption that will come off the back of it. And we are starting to see. So if we just have a look at that, that's pretty much 25, 20 to 25% of the global sort of fund finance market that's been put into a high ACES period, which is inevitably going to have a knock-on effect across the globe, as some of the larger global players will have to step up and take um, a large proportion of sort of that capacity, which then puts pressure on, say, the European counterparties in order for that capacity to sort of be shifted between balance sheets and the likes. So when we take that picture as a whole, we're definitely starting to see that capacity is becoming a trend more now sort of spoken about and actually felt across a number of GPs in the European space. It's absolutely acutely felt in the US space. And there are some GPs who are exposed to all three of those lenders that we mentioned and looking for ways to diversify across their banking groups because now the questions are coming from the LPs are being pressurized as to how are they managing banking risk across their banking portfolio. And when you are so heavily exposed to those regional banks, there is a natural flight to a larger banking group, which is exactly what we're seeing in this sort of US market. But touching on the European market, as I mentioned, there are a number of players that are being very selective in terms of how and where they are deploying their capital. And as such, some GPs are having to find new lender groups, having to replace their lenders, having to widen that group. And all of that creates a lot more sort of operational friction in the first instance, uh, a lot more uncertainty about the future as those relationship banks are no longer, they, they're having to build up new new sort of relationships with new banks. Obviously, it's not the case for all GPs, as there is a tendency for flight to quality. So that means sort of GPs with a longer track record, more successful sort of fundraising stories and performance, you will see a higher sort of availability of lending available for those types of GPs. But overall, we are seeing an absolute sort of change in GPs' attitude towards sort of their lending group. 
in the first instance. And the second instance, actually looking at diversifying that capital available to them. And what does that mean? That means looking at non-bank lenders and looking to create an element of diversity across their lending group, as well as lending sources, so that they are able to mitigate that risk factor internally, but also because it's now evident that actually that capacity piece across the market is more acutely felt today than it ever has in the past. And while GPs are potentially able to sort of solve this challenge with sort of the banks that they have available, there's a clear runway for the future, which indicates that this problem is not going to go away. If anything, there needs to be a sort of a solve. And that's where we seeing a lot of opportunity coming through from NLC and obviously bringing that institutional capital piece in alongside banks to support the growth and to support GPs where um, are either refinancing or entering into new fundraising sort of cycles and are requiring relatively large facilities where previously sort of sound to um, to access but today becoming far more challenging. Yeah, I think um, yeah, it's interesting what you say. I think irrespective perhaps of SBB, and, and Credit Suisse and the like, you know, there was already that sort of the institutional capital was already coming in to work alongside banks um, as as GPs were acquiring more and more. So I guess perhaps just some of some of the recent activity has accelerated that growth for yeah. businesses like yours. Absolutely. And we're also seeing a number of banks sort of working with institutional capital, obviously you know, coming from Investec, this is exactly what we did. And we did it extremely, yeah, we did it very well. And they continue to do that um, alongside their balance sheet. There are a number of other sort of banks who are doing exactly the same thing, which we find very encouraging and something that we would expect to continue. I think the real value piece on NLC is being independent um, and not linked to any bank. We're able to sort of really support the market as a whole. And when we're coming into sort of larger clubs, we can work alongside all banks. So I think that's, that's a key difference but we're definitely seeing that change and that change is a positive change. You've pretty much summed up there the volume of the capital there in the market, how it's changed over the last six months. Perhaps maybe then we could touch on what sort of challenges non-bank lenders versus bank lenders are facing in terms of capital restrictions. Are you seeing any sort of differences there? I think that's a great question. And I think when you have a look at the market as a whole, and more specifically that subscription financing side where we focus on, the challenge there more than anything is not necessarily the capital because when you have a look, when when you're looking at it from an institutional investor's point of view, they're looking at an asset class that is akin to an investment grade sort of fixed income alternative that they can get or where they're currently deploying their their capital. The challenge is more so coming across whereby the structure in, in which institutional investors deploy their capital RCFs don't necessarily work for them. And as such, there is a little bit of a shift that needs to come through in terms of the market to bring that institutional capital at scale. We fundamentally believe that the structure of working with an RCF and term tranches or institutional term tranches alongside each other is the future of this market in the first instance. And the second, it actually provides DPs with the best sort of solution across both pieces. So I think that's where more of, of a change is required, less less as a challenge, but more of a change for institutional capital to come in at scale, which is what we effectively doing. One of the points you did ask there was around sort of, are we seeing any difference in sort of the capital treatment between the two? I think it's mm-hmm. fair to say that 
during the period of last year through various different pieces in, in the governments and the change in of some of the regulations or some of the, the policy points, we did see more specifically the UK institutional market suffer quite quite significantly through the, the change in the guilt. Mm-hmm. And effectively, there was a huge outflow um, of liquidity from those institutions, which was caused um, sort of outside of, of of their control, but they needed to manage to that. But largely, that was that's been self-rectified. And when we have a look at these institution investors, there is a significant amount of appetite for short-dated investment grade paper that's paying a premium, which is effectively where the subscription finance market sort of um, sort of sits. But it's just to note that there was there has been in the past that challenge that's faced um, some of the institutions, but more specifically UK insurers. You briefly touched on the future there, Slade, and um, we, we mentioned to you earlier, we end every podcast with a sort of a crystal ball section where we ask our our guests to talk about, you know, what they expect to be seeing in the next year. And if and if we had this conversation again in 12 months time, what we would be talking about. Um, what, what do you think are going to be sort of the biggest changes in in your business, um, in the fund finance market? And and more generally, do you, you know, if you if you see any sort of bigger factors at play that you think are going to affect the market in the next 12 months, what do you think we're going to be talking about? I think it's going to be very much what we're talking about today, if not a little bit more institutionalized, if I'm looking forward and thinking about it. And what I mean by that is seeing more and more institutional capital coming into the fund finance market. It's very well trodden in the NAV space, and that's because those structures work pretty well. Term tranches sat out for longer periods, but we expect far more development to come through in the subscription financing side. And we expect the discussion to be how do we incorporate both the institutional and us and and bank capital together and supporting that market and that growth. Hopefully there's no real sort of systemic um, downturn, but for all intents and other purposes, we expect it to be sort of business as usual. The real change for us is sort of continuing to bring that institutional capital at scale mm-hmm. through new structures into to new markets and really diversifying across both the US, Europe uh, and the UK. That was great, Slade. Thank you so much. And it was a really, really insightful episode. I'm sure our listeners will all agree. And hopefully we will get the chance to sit down with you again in 12 months and see if those predictions have held true. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure joining you today.